Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 18. First half of Acts, the main human character is the Apostle Peter. The second half of Acts, the main human character is the Apostle Paul. And normally, in the second half of Acts, Paul is sort of the the main person we are looking at. But today, Paul is going to be more of a background character, and we're going to take a... um, We sort of have a cameo appearance of of Apollos, who you may have heard of uh, before, and we're going to look at, try to get a sketch of who this figure Apollos was. Uh, He's only in Scripture a few times briefly, makes his way into three books in the New Testament, and uh, I'm going to try to sketch a little bit of a picture of who this man was and why he should matter to us. If you will look at the screen here, we looked at this last time. Paulus was originally from the city of Alexandria in Egypt, and Alexandria is right where that red dot is there, and Ephesus, the city that he's going to go to today, is right about there, and of course you can see Corinth from last week. And what we're going to learn is that uh, this man, Apollos, grew up down there in Egypt in uh, in Alexandria. Let's say a couple things about this city. Alexandria, Egypt was considered the second, maybe the second most important city in the entire Roman Empire. It had a large population and a big economy. It was also very well known for its, its academic background. Um, I've got jotted down here, one of the most famous uh, Jewish thinkers from the time period of Jesus and Paul, who's not a Christian and not in the Bible, is a guy named Philo, uh, and he was in Alexandria, Egypt. Also, uh, th- this will make the mathematicians in the room really happy, Euclid. In 300 BC, the father of geometry, he was from Alexandria, Egypt. So if you, if you hate geometry, you have Alexandria to blame. If you love geometry, you could be thankful that, that he grew up there in Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, also, more important biblically speaking, uh, if you remember, 200 years, 250 years before Jesus was born, Jewish culture was sort of taken over by Greek culture, remember Hellenization, and so the Greek language became dominant. It was very possible that you could grow up as a Jew and not actually know Hebrew or be able to understand the Old Testament in Hebrew, and so they needed to translate the Old Testament. And this is called the Septuagint, the LXX, the the 70. There was apparently, as legend has it, 70 scholars who painstakingly translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. That is the Bible that is being quoted most of the time in the New Testament. When a New Testament writer writing in Greek is quoting the Old Testament, they're normally quoting the Septuagint translation, and that was done in Alexandria in in Egypt, there where Apollos grew up. There was also two other little interesting things. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Alexandria. There was a small island just off the coast there, uh, less than a mile away from the coast, and it broke a lot of the waves so that it made a nice port area. And there was a massive lighthouse. Uh, it was hundreds of feet tall. It was one of the tallest buildings of the time. That was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there in Alexandria. And also, there was a massive library, the biggest library of the ancient world. It had, now, reports vary a lot on this. Some people say, 300,000 scrolls, some people say 700,000 scrolls, or what you might think of as library books. And the goal here was to have every book ever written copied in the Alexandrian library. I don't think they made it to every single one, but they had hundreds of thousands of scrolls or books, essentially, that you could go read in the library, and tragically, it was burned down uh, during a war, and so we no longer have access to those books. But that's the, that's the atmosphere in which Apollos would have grown up. It was, it was highly into academics, and especially the Old Testament. And the Jewish population was enormous. 
Uh, maybe about a third of the people, maybe about a fourth in Alexandria were Jewish. Over 100,000 Jews lived in the city when Apollos was there. And th this was the largest group of Jews outside of Jerusalem that you could find in the ancient world. So that is where, that is where Apollos was from. You say, well, why do you take the time to tell us all that? Well, I, I want to read the text. I, I promise you that does matter to today's passage. L just look one more time at the screen. Apollos at some point makes his way up here uh, to Ephesus. He's going to be in Ephesus for a little while while Paul is gone, and then he's going to make his way across the Aegean Sea, and he's going to end up in Corinth at the end of today's passage. So he came from Alexandria, he goes to Ephesus, and then he meets Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, and then he makes his way over to what is called Achaia, or the, the, where, where the city of Corinth is. Everybody following that. So here we go. I'm going to read today's passage, and uh, this is the Word of the Lord, uh, Acts Chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, I'll grant you this point here is maybe not the most important thing I could say about Apollos, but it's just worth mentioning. Uh, in the history of the church, there's always been this endless debate, and I don't think it is going to end before heaven, of who the author of the book of Hebrews is. If you've ever read Hebrews, it's an anonymous who wrote the book, and there have been debates throughout church history. I will grant you, if this is one of those debates that makes you really angry with people, you probably need to take a step back on that one, okay? That one's probably not the one you want to die on that hill. So I'm not going to tell you I know for sure who wrote Hebrews because I don't. But Elizabeth and I were just talking about this in, in after, after uh, Sunday school. Uh, the, probably the three leading candidates throughout church history have been these. Number one, the Apostle Paul, and that is certainly possible. Uh, some of the earliest collections of New Testament manuscripts would lump Hebrews in with he Paul's letters, and so uh, some, some Bibles even say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews at the top, which is a bold heading in your Bible if that's what it says, but that, a lot of people have believed that. Because of writing style differences and the fact that he doesn't name himself, it seems perhaps maybe not Paul. Other people have suggested that Luke, uh, the beloved physician of Paul, who was good friends with Paul, who wrote Luke and Acts, since the literary style of Hebrews is, is, is quite strong, Perhaps Luke is sort of translating Paul and putting Paul into the eloquent Greek that you find in Hebrews. Perhaps Luke is the one who wrote down a sermon Paul had given or a message that Paul had given, which is certainly possible. It has also been contended, Martin Luther was a big proponent of this, that Apollos, today's, uh, the person in today's passage, was the author of Hebrews. Now, I am not going to sit here and tell you that that is for sure what is true. I will at least say it is certainly possible that it was Apollos because the eloquent Greek in Hebrews matches his education in Alexandria, and he knows his Old Testament extraordinarily well, which Apollos would have learned with, with high degree of academic excellence in Alexandria, and uh, he also knew Timothy, so it, it, it's at least possible that, that it was Apollos, but I will, not, I will not die on that hill. I'll just let you know, that's one of the top ca candidates for the, for the author of Hebrews. 
Now, I want to, and don't, don't have a look of fear in your eyes. I've got a lot of points today, but I don't think it's going to take a tremendously long time to work through these. I, I, I wrote down 11 things that we're going to learn about Apollos today in today's passage, but some of these group together pretty nicely, so don't be, don't be too afraid. If you want, I'm going to try to keep them to just sort of one word each. If you want to jot them down to kind of keep them, because trying to remember this would be very difficult to do. You have to have some kind, of, some kind of trick to remember all these words. I don't have them all memorized myself. So I've got them written down right here. I'm, I'm just going to kind of tell you what they are really quickly, and then we'll work through them uh, as we go. So, some of these you want to imitate. A couple of them you either maybe can't imitate or should not imitate. We'll, we'll explain as we go. But here we go. Well, there's a lot we can learn from Apollos. Number one, Apollos was educated. Two, eloquent. Three, competent. Four, instructed. Five, fervent. Some of you are breaking a sweat right now trying to write this down. Number six, accurate. Number seven, ignorant. Number eight, bold. Number nine, humble. Number 10, approved. And number 11, powerful. Now, they all have a sentence that goes with it, but I'm not going to give you 11 sentences. So, th there you go. Th those, are, those are the words. And uh, we're going to begin to walk through these uh, right now. Number one, Apollos was educated. And I'm going to read some verses repeatedly because we have a short text. Look with me at verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. So, number one, he was educated, educated in the great city of Alexandria in Egypt. Now, here is the footnote. Obviously, his early upbringing, uh, given when he would have been born, very likely, was not a so-called Christian upbringing, but it would have been steeped in the Old Testament and in Jewish teaching, and he had a rich, no doubt a rich uh, biblical background and education in his upbringing, which explains why he became the man that he is today. And I, I want to make a point of application, but I want to be very careful with this point of application, because I think there's a danger of saying more than the Bible would want me to say or to bind a conscience in a way that is beyond Scripture. That's always a danger. And so I want to just try to give some principles that I think are applicable, especially for parents in the education of their children. Uh, they're, they're, I, again, I want to be careful. I, I, I don't want to say too much, but I'm also afraid of saying too little on this topic, and there's, there's a danger on both sides. But let me just say a few basic principles that I think uh, should get us at least thinking in a, in, a, in a, I hope, a helpful direction. Thinking about the… because we can't control our own education per se, when we're, at least when we're young, but for, for those who are parents or will be parents, when you think about the responsibility of educating your children, the Bible says to bring them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, and um, just something to think through. As parents, are we giving our children, especially in those early and formative years, are we giving them an education that is from a biblical worldview and, told, and taught by people who believe what the Bible teaches? Or are the main influencers and main teachers of our children those who have a secular worldview and do not themselves believe in the authority and, and final sufficiency of Scripture? Again, do you see I could… This is, this is a difficult thing what to say here exactly, but I, I just want us to think very carefully about the education of our children. I think this is a, certainly it's a hot-button issue, and you can make people feel very strong emotions about what you might, might say here, but I think at the very least it must be true that we are, parents are responsible for the education of their children. Certainly that is biblically true. And do we really want a secular worldview taught by a secular person to my kindergartner? Surely that can't be what the Lord would want. Uh, should, our, should, our, should our third grader be receiving a secular education from a secular person? 
Should our eighth grader, and, and on and on, it seems to me that we are responsible for the education of our children biblically, and that a biblical worldview is at the heart of that. What I mean is, is science taught as though God is there, or is science taught as though God may not be there at all? Or is math taught in light of God? Is art taught in light of God? Are all the subjects, logic and reason, taught in light of God? Uh, th those kinds of things. So, uh, Apollos became the man he was in part because of the education he received. I grant you, his education was not Christian, or in the early years it would have been Jewish with an Old Testament background, but his background was still steeped in Scripture. And there is no question that that had a huge influence on him becoming uh, who he would be. Number two, eloquent. He was eloquent, as it says right here in our text. I'm going to read verse 24 again. Now, a, a, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He was eloquent. Now, th this word eloquent can be translated uh, competent, uh, excuse me, can be translated learned or eloquent, but here's the, here's the deal. Whichever one of those two is true, and I do think learned is a good translation of this word given the fact of what we see in 1 Corinthians about Apollos being a, a very well-spoken person. I think he was eloquent. I think that's the right translation. Either way, if you are eloquent, do you have to also in this culture know something to say if you're speaking? The, yeah, the idea here is not just that you can fill space with words, but that you actually have something important and worthy of being said to say. So he was eloquent. When he spoke, people listened. This man had a, an ability to command a room when he spoke, and people leaned in, and they heard, and they listened, and they, they, they wanted to learn from Apollos. And so, listen, when I say we can't all imitate Apollos, not everyone has a natural gifting. You know, some people have a gift in one way. Some people have a natural gift in another way. We may not all, may, we may not all have the, the eloquence of Apollos. My guess is Nobody in this room has the eloquence of Apollos. I think this guy had extraordinary gifts in his teaching that I don't think any of us have. But can we all uh, make steps to become more and more able to articulate God's Word to others in a way that is going to help them? Absolutely. Every single one of us has a responsibility to grow in our knowledge of God and our ability to communicate uh, what God's Word says. So Apollos was educated, eloquent. Number three, he was competent in the Scriptures. Look again at the tail end of verse 24. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Now, if you've come from a non-Christian background and you were recently converted and, and you've become a believer, that is wonderful. Do not for one second think that you're less than as a Christian because you came to know the Lord and you did not have a Christian upbringing. That's not at all what I am saying. But what I am saying is we should all make it in our ambition as Christians to become increasingly competent in the Scriptures. Uh, is this true of you? Can, can you look back a year, five years, depending on your age, 10, 20, 30 years? Can you look back and see where you were in your competency in Scripture, your wisdom, your ability to know where things are, to explain and understand and put things together in your Bible? Can you look back five years and say, well, I, I knew some things and I was able to say some things, I understood some, but I, over five years, by God's grace, I really do see growth. I, I really do see that I've grown in, in, in my competency. It's not a pat yourself on the back thing at all. It's, it's a thank the Lord for His grace in my life. But do you look back and see, I, there has been growth. There, there was a real understanding. I've, I've heard someone say, you know, uh, maybe you don't, you don't feel like you know enough about the, the Bible, and a friend asks you a difficult question. And you ever had this happen? This has happened maybe to you. You're sitting there, and you're, maybe you're sitting in the living room somewhere, you're talking to somebody, and they ask you a question about Scripture. And it's, a, it's a challenging question, and it takes some wisdom and some care to think through it. And you would have thought five years ago, there's no way you could answer this question. And all of a sudden, words are coming out of your mouth. And the words kind of make sense. 
and they're, you're kind of able to put some thoughts together and throw some, you put some verses together, and before you know it, you, you kind of were able to answer a challenging question that you would have been asking five years ago, but now, you know, not arrogantly, but you were able to help this person see something, and you were able to put something together that you couldn't have done a few years ago. Well, praise God. I mean, praise God for growth in our ability to be, become more competent in the Scriptures. We should make that a goal, that we, that we study God's Word, that we grow in it. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says to Timothy, that young man, Listen to these words. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. Bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that was in you through the laying on of hands, uh, through the prophecy of the council of elders. Practice these… Now, listen to this. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Again, that's not an arrogant thing. This is not Nicodemus the Pharisee going, look at how much progress I've made. I, I am amazing. No, 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 no. Not, not at all. No, no spirit of arrogance. But if, listen, if God's Word is, is health to the soul, if it is healthy truth that is in God's Word, we should, just like you should care about someone's physical health, we should care about someone's spiritual health. And the more we know God's Word, the more we can humbly serve spiritual meals to people who need to know what God's Word teaches. When someone says something that's destructive and harmful, not arrogantly, but we can know, oh, wait, I don't know. Let's think through that. I don't think that's quite right. Let's think about what Scripture says here. We're able to steer people away from error and direct them towards truth out of a completely gracious and humble heart, but hopefully through a competency in Scripture. And there is no question that as Apollos grew, we'll see him here, grow in front of our eyes, he was able increasingly to do that. Number four, Apollos was instructed. He was instructed in the way of the Lord in verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, I'll just mention this briefly because we'll talk more about it, but that, that word instructed, now I don't pronounce Greek words well. I wrote it down. Let me see if I can get this close because you'll know, that, see if you can tell the English word. The word is katechamenos. Catechize, Fred Schuler, that is correct. That is where we get the English word to catechize or to, to, you know, to have a catechism. Now, um, I'll be honest, my parents did some of the catechizing with me. I wasn't the best with the catechism, okay? I didn't, I didn't necessarily love being catechized when I was a kid, but now as a parent, I look back and I love the fact that that's what, that's what my parents did because uh, it is so wonderful to have a definition of basic doctrinal things in your mind from a very early age. Uh, you know, we are all born Trinitarian heretics. <laughs> Everybody thinks they understand how to explain the Trinity until they start talking and suddenly it's modalism or Arianism or whatever it is, we're, we're explaining some kind of heresy. It is great to have catechism to a young child. Uh, we're not doing a great job of this with our kids, but we do have, we even, we, we even have this little thing we do with our kids where, you know, there, there are three persons in one God. And we'll say that. My kids kind of look at me like, what does that mean? There are three persons and one God, and we will talk through this with our children just so they can get that into their mind at an early age. To be instructed in the Lord is a tremendous gift. There's, a, there's a, a story, and I'm going to get the details, the specifics wrong here, but Spurgeon. And Spurgeon got the chance to address a whole bunch of young children from, I think, various places. I don't, they were not all from his church, I don't think, but he, he was speaking to a large group of young children. We would consider elementary school children. And he said, what is prayer? You know, and the, you know, the kids are thinking, you know, talking to God, which is a fine answer, and they, you know, they're saying a few different things. And then one, one kid raises his hand, and Charles Spurgeon calls him this kid, and this kid gives the most astonishing, like, paragraph-long definition of prayer you have ever heard in your life. And then Spurgeon said, 
he, he talked about his, I don't know if it's Presbyterian or what it was. He's like, but you grew up hearing the catechism, didn't you? And the kid said, yeah, my, my parents taught me the catechism. And Spurgeon said, I wish more children would, would teach, more children would be taught the catechism by their parents because it safeguards you. At a young age, you're instructed in the Lord and you simply will know, no, there are not three gods. No, no, no. There's not just one person playing three parts in the Trinity. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a teacher, I'm a father, I'm just one person playing three parts. No, that's a, that's a Trinitarian her, her, heresy called modalism. No, it's, there are three persons, there is one God. God is one in the sense that He is one in essence, but he, there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And to have that down in your bones when you are eight years old is a gift. It will keep you from certain kinds of errors later, perhaps, in life. Number five, He was fervent in spirit. Look with me at verse 25. I mean, Luke just packs in the details on Apollos. Every phrase just tells you something else. Look at the end of verse 25. It says, being instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. In some translations, you might have a note at the bottom that the spirit could be capital S or lowercase s. Let me just tell you, this is a very hard one to figure out. Most English translations have a lowercase s, fervent in his spirit. But let me tell you, is it, how can you be fervent in your spirit without the Holy Spirit? Uh, I, I do think that the Holy Spirit is at play here. There's a parallel in Romans 12, 11, when Paul says, uh, be, be fervent in spirit. That means to be boiling, to be, to be boiling in spirit. Charles Spurgeon, I mean, not, not Charles Spurgeon, just talked about him. Sinclair Ferguson uh, had a sermon on this passage. And Sinclair, you know, he's got that great Scottish uh, accent. And, and Sinclair said, you know, we're, we're tea drinkers at my house. Said, okay. And he said, we had to buy a new kettle recently. I said, okay, where is this going? And he said, well, what happened was our kettle malfun malfunctioned in such a way that it, it would not stop. Once it reached boiling point, it would just keep going, and we had to actually get a new kettle so it would cut off at the right point when we were making our tea every day. And he said, oh, what a good preacher that kettle would make. <laughs> he said, what, what a great Christian that kettle would make. It's constantly boiling. It's always boiling in spirit, right? And Paul says in Romans 12, a Christian should be boiling in spirit. You know, maybe sort of when you're growing up, you might hear someone's on fire for Christ, right? We use that kind of language. Well, this is close to that kind of language. Fervent in spirit means to be boiling, to be burning in spirit, to have this, to have this warmth, this love for the Lord that is warm. In, in Luke 24, Scott preached on this a few uh, at Easter last year. Uh, on the road to Emmaus, remember the disciples are walking and they don't recognize Jesus, and Jesus begins just unpacking the Old Testament like a way they, in a way they'd never heard, pointing to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And, and there's this wonderful part where it says, after Jesus left, it said, did not our hearts, what, burn within us when He unpacked to us the Scriptures? And, and I just, I think that faithful Bible teaching and also faithful Bible reading should lead to light and heat. Light means clarity of thinking. I see what's in the text. It's clear. There's light, but there's also warmth in our chest. There is warmth. There is, there is, a, there is a warmth within us. I, I think of uh, when, when Luther had written his commentary on, I believe it was on Romans at the time. I think it was Romans. He has this wonderful preface, if you've ever read it, this beautiful summary of the book of Romans and all about the gospel about Christ's free mercy and how it's not by our works, it's by Christ's works. And we turn from ourselves, we trust in Christ's atonement, we can be saved. And that, that book had been published, and if I remember correctly, the Wesley brothers, I believe, were in a room, uh, and they were listening to this being read by a guy who'd recently been converted. And they say later, this was their conversion, they're hearing Romans summarize the gospel, and uh, the Wesley, one of the Wesley brothers, uh, I don't remember if it was Charles or John, his heart began to be warmed, and suddenly he was converted right there in this room as Romans was being summarized in Luther's introduction, and he said later, my heart, during that meeting, that Bible study, my heart was strangely warmed. And, and how many of us have experienced that, 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 that warmth in spirit, that, that love, that, that, uh, that intense love for the Lord that begins to boil and to begin to burn? And, and as Christians, 
We need to safeguard that. We need to do everything we can to keep the heart warm to the Lord, to keep the affections kindled, to keep boiling in the Spirit for the Lord because once the fire goes out, oh man, we're in trouble. We've got to have that warmth in the Spirit. Number six, Apollos was accurate but limited in his teaching. He was accurate but limited in his teaching. Verse 25 again, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. I'm going to link this to my very next point, which is the word uh, ignorant. Number seven, he was ignorant. This is the part you should not imitate about Apollos, okay? He did not know the fullness of what he needed to know. Now, similar to who wrote Hebrews, it's a little hard to put this puzzle together right now. So I'm going to tell you what I think I know with some confidence and what I'm simply not as sure about. Are you ready? I think Apollos was a genuine believer filled with the Spirit at this moment before he gets the further instructions in just a second. Now, that's controversial, but I do think he was a believer because, number one, he was fervent in spirit, which I think includes the Holy Spirit. Number two, we'll see that a word describes him in a second that's only used to describe Paul eight other times in the Bible about him being bold for Christ. And number three, it doesn't say he spoke, in, he spoke accurately concerning the things of the Christ, which a, which a Jew would believe. It says he spoke accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he knew, he knew of Jesus, though he only understood the baptism of John. Now, commentators are all over the place on this. So I think I'm safe to say Apollos is a believer, and just next Sunday's sermon, we're going to contrast him with another group of disciples in Ephesus who also knew the baptism of John, but I don't think they were believers. And I think Luke is setting Apollos next to these 12, 12 disciples in, in Ephesus. He's, he's wanting us to contrast them to each other. I don't think they're the same. I think they're meant to be contrasted, although there are some similarities. The question is, what did Apollos know and what did he not know? I don't know for sure. He knew John and his baptism. He also knew of Jesus now, I know this is controversial. I suspect he did know something of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but I don't think he fully understood everything about perhaps Pentecost and the, and the, baptism, the Christian baptism. Let me read John Stott. I think John Stott does a good job summarizing this. This is John Stott's words. On the one hand, Luke could hardly have described Apollos as instructed in the way of the Lord if at that stage he was still completely ignorant of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I tend to think that's true. I, I don't think he was completely unaware of Christ's crucifixion at this point. On the other hand, if his knowledge was largely limited to John's baptism and teaching, do you remember John the Baptist, Apollos' grasp of these events may have been minimal, and he will also have needed to hear about Jesus' commission, exaltation, and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. So whatever's going on, I think Apollos is a believer, but he hasn't got every single thing sorted out. He hasn't figured out everything, and he certainly doesn't fully grasp Christian baptism, it would seem, because he only knows John's baptism at this point. Okay, so he's, he's ignorant. Number eight, he is also bold in speech. Look at verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, that's the word right there. It's used nine times in the New Testament, that word for speak boldly. It's used nine times. Every other use describes Paul in his evangelistic zeal to preach boldly Christ, which again makes me think Apollos is a believer right now. He speaks the way Paul does in a synagogue, but with incomplete knowledge. He doesn't fully have it figured out, but he knows enough to know Jesus, the way of the Lord, to be, I think, a genuine believer, but he hasn't figured out every single thing yet. And just, just picture Priscilla and Aquila, that, that wonderful couple, 
who are now in, who are now in Ephesus, they, uh, they're listening to him preach, and they're going, this is good. He's very knowledgeable. This is good. He's passionate. He's fervent. You, can, you almost picture them uh, after, the, after the synagogue service, the, the husband and wife looking at each other going, something seems to be missing here. It was wonderful, but he, I don't know that he's been fully instructed in all the things of the gospel. There's something missing here. And so they decide to correct him. And, and that's why number, eight, number nine, Apollos was humble. This may be my favorite single thing about Apollos, given his background. Now, just stop for a second. He's about to be instructed by a couple of tent makers. He's from Alexandria. He has the education, the largest library in the world. He's been trained in one of the, one of the most incredible academic settings for a Jew to grow up, Alexandria in Egypt in the first century. This guy has got his PhD in doctrine, okay? This guy knows his stuff. And a couple of blue-collar tent makers from the, from the synagogue say, hey, can we, can we have you over for dinner? Or maybe we're going to have you over to the house. We want to talk to you a little bit. And they're about to correct his doctrine. And guess what? He humbly takes their correction, changes his teaching, and improves his teaching and goes off to do great good for the kingdom. That may be the single best attribute of him altogether. An astonishing thing. Uh, look, look at what happens. Verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, they didn't do it publicly, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And every indication is that he, he followed their instruction. Now, now, a couple things to mention here. Number one, they could have rebuked him publicly, right? This could have been in the middle of the synagogue. They just stand up in the middle of the synagogue service and say, excuse me, uh, sir, uh, apparently you haven't heard about Christian baptism. Maybe you don't even know about Pentecost. You don't understand. And they could have really just, that would have been pretty, pretty humiliating for him. But they didn't do that. Instead, they waited until after the service. They took him aside. I don't know if it was to their house or what. They took him to the side, and they corrected him in private. Now, you ever wonder about this? Didn't Paul rebuke Peter in front of everybody in Galatians 2? Yeah, in fact, later in this passage, Apollos is going to rebuke the Jews publicly as well. So there's a place for public correction. There's also a place to do it privately. Here's what I think is going on. If in private he would have said, no, I don't believe you, I'm not doing what you say, and he would have gone off preaching a distorted gospel, at some point he would have to be rebuked publicly. But I think first they're taking him aside privately to see if he's teachable, and when he proves to be teachable, they never have to rebuke him in public. He's able to go and to continue his ministry. Another thing that's interesting here and people do take this in the wrong direction, so be careful. The wife is mentioned first before her husband in this moment of rebuke. Priscilla is mentioned before her husband, Aquila. That is extremely unusual. In fact, when they are mentioned as a couple, more often she is mentioned before her husband than the husband is mentioned before her. And so, clearly, evangelical feminists run with this in a way that is not healthy and is not biblical. But just real quick, a crash course in what the Bible teaches about gender with teaching. So, um, if you don't know what we believe, put your seatbelt on here. Here we go. Uh, we do not believe that women are allowed to teach or to preach in a church. First uh, Timothy 2.12 says, women are, uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather is to remain silent. Uh, for Adam was formed first than Eve, and, and, and Paul states that. So that, that's very clear. For pastoral ministry, for teaching, for preaching, we, we, do not, uh, we only allow men who qualify for that to do that in, in our church because we believe that's what Scripture says. But we don't, want to, we don't want to miss what's going on in this text either. Titus 2 says that women should teach younger women how to love their husbands and et cetera, et cetera, Titus 2. So older women should teach younger women. That's actually commanded. So older women can teach younger women. In 2 Timothy chapters 1 and 3, you'll notice that Timothy is commended 
because his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, taught Timothy the Scriptures since he was a child. And Paul actually says, continue in what you have learned and from whom you have learned it. Look at the outcome of their way of life. Imitate them. Follow them. He's talking about the mother and grandmother. Timothy's father was not a believer. So, women should and can teach children, their own children and also other children. Uh, That is absolutely right and good. And in this case, there is a right way for a woman and a man in the church to correct teaching in private, in, in, in an appropriate setting. So, Priscilla being mentioned first, I have no she was involved in this correction, and she may have even been uh, saying more than her husband was in a sense. I'm not denying the husband's leadership or his headship, but her being mentioned first doesn't mean nothing. And so, I think she was involved in this correction, and so there is a way to humbly uh, do that. And I'll, I'll just tell you one story. I could tell you a million stories at my previous church. I was in my mid-20s. I was probably 25. I was interning at Watkinsville First Baptist Church. I was teaching in the college ministry. Some of you, I think, were there for some of that. And uh, in our college ministry, after a, after a Sunday school was over, a, a woman, maybe about 50 years old, uh, came up to me after the service, and she, she had been nothing but, you know, supportive, and she had been very encouraging of, of me and others. And, and she, she said, okay, and, and I won't even say necessarily what it was, but she, she drew out a point of something I had said. That really, it was really my tone. I, I had kind of an anger in my tone, and uh, it, was, it kind of came across a little too... And she, she just kind of pointed that out to me. She said, you know, uh, I think what you were saying was basically correct, but the, the tone seemed to have a little bit too much heat attached to it. And I thought, you know, I think, I think that's correct. And so I tried to make an adjustment after she talked to me. But there is an absolutely right way. She didn't stand up in the middle of the Sunday school and say, your tone's bad. But no, afterwards, in an appropriate way, she came and spoke to me. And it, it, I still remember it to this day. And that was probably eight years ago, or maybe more than that. And so I'm, I'm thankful for, for that. Okay, so he was humble. Number 10. He was approved. Look at verse 27. When he wished to cross to Achaia, that's where Corinth is, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Now, just stop right there. Do you see that other believers saw his giftedness and they saw his humility and his teachableness and they said, okay, we stand behind you, Apollos. We think you are a gift to the church. We're going to write letters of recommendation so that when you get to Achaia, when you get to Corinth in Achaia, they will know that you are legitimately endorsed by us and we have approved your ministry and we are behind you so that they give you an open door to preach the gospel in that new church in Corinth where Paul had just been. So it, it is nice when, you know, it's, it's one thing to think we have a gift. It's one thing to think I have a gift or you think you have a gift. And it's another thing, it's kind of like, you know, remember like back in the day with like American Idol and America's Got Talent, you know, some people think they have a gift. And then Simon Cowell's sitting there on the judgment panel looking at them, and they go, I can, I'm a really great singer. You know, I was a great singer. I won an award in middle school. I'm a great singer. And they start singing like, you know, like a, a bird that's been wounded mortally. And, uh, and, and Simon Cowell is looking at them going, red button, get out of here. It's the worst thing I've ever heard. Simon has no grace at all. Just get out of here. I'm sick of this. And so sometimes we can think we have a gift that we don't necessarily possess to the degree that we think. It is wonderful to have a body of believers around us who can encourage us in the gifts that we have. Someone can say, listen, you may not know this, but I think you have the gift of evangelism. Keep saying that to Josh Chronic. I'm like, Josh, he, he denies it, but I'm like, Josh, no, you, you, you've clearly got the gift of evangelism or whatever it may be. And he, he, I think that's an encouragement to hear from other people to affirm a gift that you have. I think you have the gift of encouragement. I think you have the gift of this or that or the other, the gift of generosity, the gift of service, the gift of administration. And, and it's wonderful to have others around us affirm the gifts we have. And let's not just be selfish about this. What should we do? We should look for evidences of grace in other people and let them know about it. Okay, just a side point here. It, it is so easy to fall into this temptation to go, well, if I say this encouraging thing, they're going to get a big head about it. Listen, I, I understand, we all struggle with pride, but so often we struggle with discouragement too, right? Just in general, as people. 
And isn't it just wonderfully encouraging to your soul for someone to come up to you and say, I've observed that the Lord doing this in your life, and I just think I am grateful to the Lord for the gift that He's given you here. That is a, it's like giving fresh, fresh oxygen to someone sometimes when they need it. We need to be a little less afraid of giving necessarily a big head. I mean, don't flatter people. Don't say things that are not true. But we should be quick to encourage and not be so afraid, oh, I'm going to give you a big head. No, 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 no. If you see the gift of encouragement in someone, the gift of, of hospitality, let them know. T- tell them about the gift that God has given them. These believers endorse uh, the gift that Apollo says. And we made it to number 11. Now, I'm just going to tell you before you think we're almost done. I got one more piece at the end, a bonus piece that I'm going to add before we're done. So, I'm not done just yet. But number 11, he was powerful in his apologetics. Look with me, middle of verse 27. When he arrived, this is in Corinth, across the Aegean Sea. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So, there's the sovereignty of God and salvation again. They believed because of grace. It was through grace they believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. He gets to Corinth, and with his vast Old Testament knowledge, informed by the gospel of Jesus, he is able lovingly and powerfully to just unpack the Old Testament and show how it just points to Jesus. And there, he's able to overwhelm the unbelieving Jewish crowd and to encourage the believing Jews and Gentiles in the city of Corinth. All right, now here's my my little bonus piece to the sermon. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. You can leave Acts. We're not coming back right now. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to look at several parts of 1 Corinthians, and then we we will pray. Because Apollos, as you may know, appears repeatedly in 1 Corinthians. It's no wonder Paul was just in Corinth, remember last Sunday? And he left. He went back home to his home church. While he's gone, Apollos comes in where Paul had just left in Corinth, and he preaches there. And remember, division starts arising because people say, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow the Lord. Okay, look with me. 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to be reading a lot of verses for a few minutes. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, Paul writing back to the Corinthians a few years later, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you ag- that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among, among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Okay, look at chapter 3. Read a good bit of chapter 3 here, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Pause right there. You know how this would happen, right? They're they're all relatively new Christians. Paul's the super theologian. Apollos is this incredibly powerful speaker. Peter knew the Lord Jesus in his earthly life, and all of them start gravitating toward their favorite guy. And they start identifying themselves with their favorite speaker, their favorite pastor, and they begin to start throwing stones at the other groups, and they start to divide on those lines. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Look back at verse 6. Who planted the church in Corinth? 
Paul. He's the one that first started that church. But then Apollos came after Paul planted the seeds, and he watered them. He helped cultivate the growth in that church as God gave growth. Okay, I want to skip some verses. Turn with me to chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In the last verse, turn to chapter 16, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. This verse, I had… Honestly, this is one of those verses that you kind of read through it and it just never even really sticks in your memory. I felt like I had never seen this verse before this week. I mean, just it was strange. And it's a wonderful passage. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 12. This is a wonderful forgotten text, at least for me. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, that may not look like much of a verse. So this is, time has gone on. Paulus has left Corinth. They're dividing over those people. Now, just get this. This is just cool to me. Paul is writing back. Was there a group in that church who identified with Paul? Could that have become an ego thing for Paul? He kind of liked it. I mean, he didn't like it, but could that have been a temptation to go, I like the fact that there's a team Paul over here. These people love me more than they like Apollos. Paul could have become turfy, right? Like, this is my turf. Get out of here, Apollos. That's his flesh. Paul does not show an iota of that. Instead, what does he do? He encourages Apollos to go back to Corinth. That is astonishing humility on Paul's part. And then Apollos doesn't want to go back. And I, I'm reading between the lines, but maybe he doesn't want to go back because he doesn't want to cause any more of this war between him and Paul. I don't know what's going on for sure, but Apollos is not able to go at this time. But they're both deferring to the other. Paul says, no, you go to Apollos. You go, Apollos. And Paul says, no, Paul, I don't want to go right now. Maybe I'll go a little later. But neither, they both have a team in the church with their name on their, you know, with their name on their shirts. And there's an Apollos group and there's a Paul group. And both of these guys are selflessly pointing to the other person. That is just a verse I never even thought about. And, and there it is. Paul says, no, Apollos, you go. You go. And Apollos says, I don't, I don't know that I want to go just yet. And, and there's this kind of, they're fighting the opposite direction of what you would expect. You would think Paul goes, I want to go, not you. And Apollos says, no, I want to go, not you. But they're actually selflessly pointing uh, away from themselves in that, in that moment as they want to go back. So what we learned today is we want to grow in our knowledge of the Bible. We want to be instructed in what is true. We want our hearts to be fervent and boiling in spirit. We want what we say to be accurate and bold. We also want to be humble and teachable when we are wrong. And we want to be approved by others and powerful in, in our ability to articulate the gospel because it is worth living for and it is worth dying for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this man, Apollos, that we know just snippets about his life. But thank you for the way you used his early childhood um, education with his being steeped in the Old Testament and the Septuagint and his ability to speak powerfully, uh, to be humble. Uh, there is so much of Christ in the way that he is, in the way that he acts. Help us, Lord, to become more like Apollos uh, because that is the life that would more honor you and help us to grow in the areas in which we are weak and help us to be thankful for areas in which you have created strength in our life. And I pray that you would make us more humble and more uh, bold in the way that we are as Christians and as a body. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.